John chapter 8, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read from verse 1 down through verse number 11. We'll read these responsibly. We'll begin reading together in verse 1. And then we'll read the odd-numbered verses together. I'll read the uh, even-numbered verses by myself. Together, beginning in verse 1, John 8. Ready? Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst... They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw her, but the woman, he, uh, let, me, let me begin verse 10 again. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where art thou, the, uh, where art those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I'm going to preach a sermon with a very interesting title this morning. The sermon is entitled this, The Sin God Will Not Forgive. The Sin God Will Not Forgive. There are two sins committed in this passage. One was forgiven. The other one was not. It isn't the one that you would expect. Many of you came in here this morning and you have a checkered past. You have done things. You have skeletons in your closet. Don't most of us have skeletons in our closet? You say, well, is that the sin that God won't forgive? We're going to look at that this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that as these truths are laid out, somebody in here this morning, Lord, would have their conscience pricked. Lord, that they would be convicted of, Lord, a heart that is far from you. And Lord, somebody would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that has, for one reason or another, been putting that off. And then, Lord, for those of us that are saved, those of us that have better faith and trust in Christ alone, help us, God, to be sincere Christians. Christians that walk by faith and not Christians that walk by sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is our human nature that when we think of sin, to categorize those into various levels. Some sins in our mind are worse than others. And we have small, small sins. And we have big sins, don't we? Uh, small sins. Let me give you some examples of small sins. A white lie would be an example. Is there such thing as a white lie? Aren't all lies bad? Uh, but we, we call them a white lie. What would be an example of a white lie? When you're telling a lie to get yourself out of a difficult spot because you don't want to deal with the consequences. Okay? You... Uh, you had, uh, you had a day out with your buddies, and it came time to pay, and you picked up the tab and put it on the credit card. And, you know, it was a couple hundred dollars. And your wife, you get home, and your wife says, or your husband says, who paid? And you say, not me. Well, why would you lie about that? Because you want to avoid the consequences. You say, oh, pastor, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a big deal. Well, lying is lying. But we have small sins. Maybe some other small, quote-unquote, small sins. Stealing something of little value. You borrowed a pen 
off of your coworker's desk and never returned it. You say, well, it's just a pen. He can get another one. Stealing is a sin. An angry spirit here or there. Oh, I lose my temper here or there. And I may fly off the handle here or there. But you know what? It's effective. And you know what? It gets people to behave. And you know what? It gets, it, it, it moves the needle where I need the needle moved. And so, uh, it, and, and we justify it. But an angry spirit here or there, we may label as a little sin. We may label a little language, a little language as a small sin. Well, you know what? It just felt real good to let that guy have my mind. And yeah, a few curse words slipped out, but you know what? I put him in his place. Or that joke just wouldn't be complete if it didn't have that cuss word right there in that spot. And we'll label sins as small and as big. We'll say things like, yeah, I may have said that, but at least I didn't kill anybody. I may have said that, but you know what? I'm still faithful to my wife. And so we'll justify. But small sins. And then we have big sins. Well, what are some big sins? Adultery. Okay, we read about adultery in the passage a few minutes ago. You know, as, um, as weird as America has gotten on this topic of sexuality, as weird and strange as it has gotten, and you may be sitting here and gasping that I would say that America has gotten weird on that topic, and I'm not going to linger here too long, but I just have to say this. Marriage was defined one way for 6,000 years, and now all of a sudden I'm strange if I want to hold to that definition of marriage. I'm sorry. If that's how it's been defined for 6,000 years, then I get to still call it that. Especially because it's in the Bible and God labeled it that way. But as twisted and weird as our country has gotten on this topic, even in the non-Christian, non-church world, if a man and woman are married to each other and one of them is unfaithful, that is still frowned down upon greatly. Greatly in our culture. Adultery we label as a big sin. Murder it would be labeled as a big sin. Hurting or abusing a child would be labeled as a big sin. Blaspheming the name of God intentionally would be labeled as a big sin. Maybe neglecting your parents for no given reason would be labeled as a big sin. In our minds, we want to have small sins and we want to have big sins. And our categorization of sins, as we will see in a minute, is not usually accurate. The truth is that when it comes to eternity, please don't miss this, when it comes to your eternal destination, all sin is equal in the sight of God. You say, no, that can't be. Would you put disobedience in the category of a big sin or a little sin? You see, Adam and Eve, the very first sin that was ever committed, that, that, that sent and condemned mankind to hell, it wasn't murder, it wasn't adultery, it wasn't abusing a child, it wasn't extortion of some great amount of money. The, the first sin that was ever committed was just the simple act of disobedient, being disobedient of a command that God had given. And here we have... What we would label as a small sin carrying with it the eternal consequence of hellfire. All sin is equal when it comes to eternity. Now, not all sin is equal when it comes to the earthly. Sometimes certain sins bring about different earthly consequences. But when it comes to eternity, all sin is equal in the sight of God. Um, um, uh, uh, we will look at this a little more closely when we get into the body of the sermon. However, there is one sin, one sin that God refuses to forgive. In fact, God hates this sin above the rest. Those that live in this sin, God refuses to have anything to do with them. You see, there are some sins that you can have going on in your life and be habitual in your life. And God may still use you, do things with you on some level. But this sin, when present in your life, God shuns you. He resists you. He wants nothing to do with you if you turn from this sin. And ask God to forgive you, then He will. But while you are doing this, while you are living in this sin, God flat out rejects you on every front. It is as though you live without God's hand of protection and His care for you is completely removed. My friends, David committed murder and adultery, yet God still labeled him as Israel's greatest king. 
Abraham lied about his marital status to his wife twice, yet he was still called the friend of God. Moses killed an Egyptian, yet God still used him to write a large portion of the Old Testament, and he's labeled as one of Israel's greatest prophets. Peter cursed and denied uh, the, the Savior while he was on, while Jesus was on trial, yet God still used him to see the church age begin. The apostle Paul tortured and persecuted Christians, some even to the death, yet God still used him to write about half of the New Testament. You see how this theory of big sins and little sins just begins to fall apart when you see the big sins that people committed in the Bible and how God still used them to do some incredible things? Well, pastor, if it's not murder or adultery or blasphemy, the persecution of Christians, then what sin is it that God refuses to forgive? And simply, it is the sin of pride. The sin of pride. My friend, it is pride that will send you to hell. It is pride that will cause God to push you to the side and have nothing to do with you. You show me how much pride you have in your heart, I'll show you how much God is resisting you. James chapter 4 and verse 6 says this, Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. First Peter 5, 5, again, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 and 17 says this, These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. The very, very first sin on God's hate list in Proverbs chapter 6 is this one, a proud look. God says, I see that look of pride not only on your face, I see it in your life, I see it in your heart, and God says it's at the very top of the sins that I hate. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction. And in haughty spirit before a fall. In heaven, Lucifer was lifted up with pride, and God threw him out of heaven and condemned him to an eternity of hell. Cain was lifted up with pride, and he was banished from the rest of humanity. Pharaoh's pride caused Egypt to be destroyed by ten plagues and his own firstborn child to be killed. The great Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ruler of Babylon, an empire much greater than even the Roman Empire, and one of the greatest kingdoms ever to be in our history of humanity, the leader of that empire's name was Nebuchadnezzar, and the Bible tells us he was so lifted up with pride that God condemned him to a life of eating grass and living and thinking and behaving like a donkey. Pride destroys marriages. Pride hurts our children. Pride causes a false confidence at work. Pride has ruined many friendships. Pride will tear apart a church family. But worst of all, pride will send billions and billions of people to burn in a literal hell. You say, well, pastor, if God loves so much, then why is there hell? You see, God uh, God would not be able to say that he was a loving God if there was not a place called hell. How just would our country be if we didn't send crooks and criminals to prison? How, uh, how much anarchy would there be if crooks and criminals who committed violent crimes didn't go to prison? No, America loves because we have a prison system and we take violent offenders off the streets and we put them behind bars to protect the rest of humanity and the very fact that we have a criminal justice system while yet it's not perfect and far from it it is proof that america is a country that loves those who want to do life the right way and my friend god is a god of love he loves you so much he sent jesus christ to come and die on the cross for your very sins he knew that your sin was going to condemn you to a place called hell and he sent jesus to suffer on the cross and suffer hell in your place and he says come unto me with a humble heart. Come to me like a child with childlike faith and I will forgive you of your sins and I will give you a home in heaven. You say I'm not going to do that and then I say to you that's because you're stubborn and stubbornness is birthed out of pride. You see, God will one day pick up a whole bunch of folks who lived on this planet Earth and He'll throw them in a place called hell, not because of any other reason than the fact that they rejected and they resisted the conviction of God's Spirit for them to have their sins forgiven and for them to be saved. Pride is the sin that God will not forgive. We're going to look at a story here this morning of a woman who is caught in the very act of adultery in John chapter 8. Jesus would forgive the woman of this horrible sin. But Jesus would not forgive the religious leaders who stood over here with a judgmental attitude. Why? Because their hearts were lifted up in pride. 
Uh, one day you, every one of you, and me included, will stand before God, and my friend, God is going to ask you one question. You ready? Here's the question God's going to ask you. What did you do with Jesus? What did you do with Jesus? Is it your pride that's going to keep you out of heaven? Is it your pride that's going to say, I had my religion, I had my rituals, I had my ceremonialism, I had my family heritage, I had my culture, and all of those things, and I didn't need Jesus alone. No, I needed Jesus plus, I need Jesus and, or I just needed these things. No, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Matthew 7 says, enter ye in at the straight gate, for broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. But straight is the path, and narrow, but narrow is the way that leads to life eternal, and few there be that find it. Why is it that so many people are unable to find that narrow path that leads to heaven? Because their pride keeps them from ever getting there. My friend, you can go to church, you can be religious, you can be lifted up in pride, and you will burn in hell for all of eternity. You say, well, Pastor Lejeune, I don't like the fact that you're preaching so hard this morning. I don't like the fact that you're talking so much about hell. And I have to tell you that hell is a literal place. As I prayed about what to preach this morning, I began down the path of putting a sermon together on the topic of hell. And I have to tell you this morning that Jesus talked far more about hell during his time on earth than he did about heaven. We know far more details about what hell is like than we do what heaven is like. God has painted a vivid picture of a literal place called hell that people who are lifted up in their pride, people who reject Christ because of pride, they will go one day. My friend, God did not create hell for you. He created it for Lucifer and his angels. It was made to torment the the demons and its leader, Lucifer. But God says, if you reject my son who I killed on the cross, I will send you there with him. What will you do? With Jesus, We're going to look closely at a powerful story in John 8. Here, Jesus is teaching in the temple, and a woman who is caught in the act of adultery is tossed down in front of Jesus by a bunch of religious leaders. These men, these men demand justice. With whom will Jesus side? How will he handle this seemingly impossible situation. Let's jump in this morning. There are no notes on the screen. We're just going to have an old-fashioned preaching service this morning. You're going to have to listen intently if you want to take notes and write them down as I say them. You won't be able to reference the screen this morning, all right? And so listen intently. Four observations from this story in John chapter 8. Point number one, notice the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. Look back with me at verse number 1 of John chapter 8. Keep your Bibles open if you will. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew. There ought to be a Bible in the pew in front of you. Pull that out. John is the fourth gospel. And we want to make sure everything we say this morning is, is rooted in Scripture. John chapter 8 verse 1 says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. Notice letter A, His devotion to the Father. His devotion to the Father. Now, uh, uh, look at verse number 2. The very beginning there says, And early in the morning He came again into the temple. We'll look at that in a moment. But I want to notice that Jesus, want you to notice, Jesus goes in the temple early in the morning. But prior to going in the temple, Jesus has already been into the Mount of Olives. Now, that means before the sun came up, Jesus took a trip into the Mount of Olives. And if you know the layout of Jerusalem, you have the temple, and then there's a valley, and on the other side of the valley you have the Mount of Olives. It was called the Mount of Olives because there was an olive garden there where olives would grow and uh, it was up on an elevated plain. And so Jesus spent a lot of time in the Mount of Olives. In fact, Jesus would be arrested uh, 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 in the Mount of Olives. And that was Jesus' place he would go to connect with his Father. Turn over if you have your Bible. Uh, turn over, hold your place in John. Turn over to Mark chapter number 1. Mark chapter 1 and verse number 35. Mark chapter 1. And I want to show you here that Jesus, before he ever dealt with anyone publicly, had spent time with God privately. Look at Mark chapter 1, read verse number 35. It says, And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he, Jesus, went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. Early in the morning, before it was day, he went out into a place all by himself and there 
he prayed. Do you know that if Jesus, who is God on earth, needed to get alone before his day ever started and have a conversation with his Father in heaven, I would say that if that was good enough for Jesus, then it's good enough for me and you. You know what walking with God does? It humbles us. You show me a man or woman who's regularly in the Bible reading it and on their face before God praying. I'll show you somebody who has a true realization that they cannot get it done. That they need God to do it through them. Before I got up here to preach this morning, I went to my office this morning and I got down on my knees and I told the Lord, I can't preach without you. We can't have church without you. You must come. You must meet with us. This is important. There's a devotion there. That devotion is a dependence on the Father. It's that connecting into the branch and the vine just being an extension of the branch. He is the branch and we are nothing more than the vines. And my friend, You cannot get up and go to work. You cannot get up and love your wife or your husband. You cannot get up and lead your children. You cannot teach a a life group class. You can't be involved in any aspect of the church. My friend, you can't even breathe air uh, and please God unless you are devoted to a time with the Lord. John 15 says, without me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. You can do nothing of eternal significance. You know what walking with God does is it humbles us. It humbles us. Every time I get on my face before God and I pray and I talk to Him, there is this, there is this realization that I am this little teeny, itty bitty, pipsqueak, nothing compared to God. If I were to take a sharpie and I were to draw a line on this back wall, I'm not going to do that. But if I were to draw, draw a line on this back wall and I were to put an arrow on this end and an arrow on this end and that line were to represent time. Eternity past that way, eternity future this way. You know what? You know where God is on that line? He is the line. He's all over it. You know where I belong on that line? You know where you belong on that line? Where little itty bitty teeny tiny dot that's barely visible. I'm talking about our flesh. If you're saved today, you're going to live on forever from where that started. But in the grand scheme of where our life on earth, and and we want God to bend around us? My friend, prayer is not about you getting things from God. Prayer is not about God revolving around you. Your time on your face before God is this humble realization. You are everything, and I, in the grand scheme of things, am nothing. Now, not only did his devotion to the Father show, um, uh, show that he cared much, it also gave him authority to stand before the people in the temple and teach. Let her be noticed, his draw of the people. His draw of the people. Look at verse number 2. And early in the morning he came again into the temple. Look here. And all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. Now, please understand the setup in this temple. It wasn't like our church building. The temple was not a place where you'd go and sit in pews and listen to a guy preach. The temple was a place where you'd go and you'd offer a sacrifice and you'd go about your religious ritual ways. Jesus would go into the corner, into the temple, and he'd get a a, a scroll that he'd pull from the, the, the general area where the scrolls were kept, where the scriptures were kept. And he'd go over to the side, maybe against a wall or in a corner somewhere, and he'd open up the scroll. And as soon as he did that, without calling a name, without a announcing he was going to start speaking as soon as he walked in the temple people flocked to him and they sat down and the bible says all the people in the temple came and sat down to hear him teach they came because of his authority they came because of his authority turn over to matthew chapter 7 for me matthew chapter 7 in matthew 5 6 and 7 jesus is giving his first uh, public uh, uh, address to those who he's calling his disciples and at the end he's he's given three chapters of just Hard-hitting truths. I, I mean, things that were revolutionary to the ears of those that were hearing them. And he finishes what he has to say with a parable about house being built on a rock versus sand and how one lasts and the other doesn't and about us building our lives on the rock of truth. And look at verse 28. It says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Let me ask you a question this morning. Does Jesus have real authority in your life? 
Does Jesus have authority in your life? Jesus says this. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says this. He says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. That's back in John 8. We'll look at it more carefully in a moment. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm the light. Follow me. You know what Jesus, you know what we're called today, our believers in Jesus? We're called his disciples or his followers. You know why? Because he has authority. Does he have authority in your life? I can tell you this, if you're lifted up in pride, he does not, because you are the authority in your life. He's not the authority in your life. Number one, the authority of Jesus. Number two, notice the adultery of the woman. The adultery of the woman. Now, for our young uh, listeners in the room today, I will be careful. No, no need to be nervous. We go back to John chapter 8 and verse number 3. It says, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, when they had set her in the midst. Wow. This woman was in the act of adultery. And these men yanked her up. Walked right into where it was happening and yanked her up, barely let her robe herself, drug her to the temple and threw her down right in the middle of Jesus' preaching. Now, we'll look at the, uh, we'll look at what the Pharisees did here in a moment, but let's just talk about what this woman was doing. This woman was being unfaithful to her husband. This woman was a married woman. She was involved in an extramarital relationship. And I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon how that, that is still frowned upon in our culture. And to that I say, I'm glad it is. I'm glad it is. To the men in the room today, you're to be faithful to your wife. And that doesn't just mean physically, that means emotionally. That means you be careful what you look at on your, on your electronic devices, that you're accountable, that you're careful. We live in a day and age where, where uh, uh, provocative and loosely dressed and lewd women are everywhere and just a couple of clicks on a screen away. You can be looking at things that you have no right looking at. And if you go look at those things, you are not being faithful to your wife. But we also live in a day and age where women are cheating on their husbands at a record pace. Your husband's working a lot, or your husband's not around much, or your husband's a disappointment to who you expected him to be. And some guy shows up in your life, and he treats you like the woman you want to be treated, and he acts like he cares about you, and he he pretends to be emotionally involved in your life as though he cares about you. And really, he only has one thing in mind, but he's able to play on you and dupe you, and the next thing you know, uh, uh, it just feels right, so you're jumping uh, into a relationship and into the physical side of relationship that you have no right being in. And the next thing you know is you've been unfaithful to your husband and you can justify it all day long. You can make excuses for it. You can point to all the errors and shortcomings of your husband and maybe they're a mile long and maybe they're all true and maybe they're none of them are exaggerated. But my friend, it is never, ever, ever right if you are married to break the vowels of that marriage. You say, well, pastor, But don't we all sin? And I would say, yes, we do. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of God's glory or the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Turn in your Bibles over to James chapter 2. James would be to the right. If you're in John, you get to Romans is a big book and keep going. You get to Hebrews and James is the book right after Hebrews. And so Hebrews, James, if you got to Revelation, you went a hair too far. James is between Hebrews and Revelation. James chapter number two. Now I want to show you something here that these Pharisees had forgotten. And that was that all sin carries the same eternal consequence. Look at James chapter two and verse number 10. It says, But if ye have respect of persons, I'm sorry, this verse 9. But if ye have respect of persons, ye commit sin and are convicted of the law as transgressors. Verse 10, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Now, I want to bust a myth here, a religious myth. There is this myth, again, of big sins 
and little sins. And that if I don't commit any big sins, and all I have committed is little sins, then I'm going to get to heaven, and I'm going to stand in front of God, and God's going to look at the sins of my life. And as long as I didn't commit any of those big sins, and I did a whole bunch of good in my life, then God's going to swing open that pearly gate, and I'm going to get to walk right in. Did you read James chapter 2, verse 10? Did you see what it said? It said if you commit, if you break in one point, you have broken the whole law. Now, back in Exodus chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments. How many of you um, do your best to try to keep the Ten Commandments here this morning? You're not perfect at it, but you try. Okay, there's an effort there. The rest of you don't? No effort, huh? So I'm just stealing and killing everybody. All right. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make into thee any graven image. Right? You know them. I hope you know them. One time I was out trying to tell someone about how to go to heaven. And I said to them, I said, do you know you're going to heaven when you die? And they said, I do. And I said, well, how do you know? They said, well, I keep the Ten Commandments. And then I did this. I had this agitating moment. I looked at them and said, can you right now name all Ten Commandments in order? And they said, um, uh, um. Uh, let's see, uh, don't kill, don't steal, uh, don't covet. I said, that's not, that's not even the first three. I said, can you name the Ten Commandments? And they put their head down and said, no. And I said, if you can't even name the Ten Commandments, how are you going to go about keeping them to get into heaven? Can you name all Ten Commandments? Some of you can. Some of you maybe can't. But the point is, we're trying to live moral. Now, here, uh, coveting. Coveting is wanting something that doesn't belong to me that I right now can't have. All right, I drive out, go out in the parking lot, and I see someone driving a Mercedes-Benz. I can't afford the lease payment or the car payment on a Mercedes-Benz. And I look at that, and I begin to drool. And I, oh. Or I see a big truck. I'm dressed like I'd be driving a truck. So I see a big Dodge truck with a Hemi engine. And, oh. That's coveting. Is coveting the same as adultery? Well, we wouldn't put those on the same level. But the Bible says that these commandments, these moral laws are like a chain. And if you break at one point, you've broken them all. You've broken them all. You understand here? This woman committed adultery. Oh, it was bad. But your coveting, your lying, your dishonoring of your parents, whatever moral law you're breaking, God says, you are in trouble. You are in trouble. This lady had committed adultery. Before you pick up a stone and throw it at her, the way these disciples were, we better all take a good look in the mirror. Number three, the attitude of the Pharisees. The attitude of the Pharisees. I'm going to move quickly through this. Notice letter A, their trap. They're trapped. Look at verse number 4 of John chapter 8. It says, They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Rather, look back at verse 3. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. Okay? Uh, They're trapped. Now, I have to say that um, this was pretty devious. Pretty devious. They, the Bible says they caught her in the act. Now, I have to tell you, we live in a pretty loose world. i got to say, I have never, ever caught anyone in the act of adultery. Can we just make a presumption here? This is probably a safe presumption. This was a setup. This was a setup. Let me give you letter B. Their text. Their text. Look at verse 5. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that... Such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This was a mob crowd. These were religious men. These were the leaders in the temple. They went and got this woman in the very act of adultery. She may have had a chance to put a robe around her. They drug her to where Jesus was teaching in the temple. They throw her down on the ground in front of Jesus. And they say, Moses said she should be stoned. They probably had the rocks in their hands. What do you say? Well, was there validity to what they were saying? Leviticus chapter 20. You can turn there if you like. If not, I'm just going to read it to you. Leviticus chapter 20 in verse number 10. I'm going to show you here the, the sin in their heart. Listen to Leviticus chapter 20 verse number 10. It says, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. I want to ask these Pharisees and scribes a question. 
Where was the man? She wasn't committing adultery by herself. Well, they drug the woman up here. Now, I've heard speculation that one of the scribes and Pharisees lured her away and got her into this act. And they were protecting one of their buddies. Now, that's speculation. Who knows if that's true or not? But they didn't bring the man. They threw her down in the front of Jesus. But where was the man? According to that passage, both of them should have been put to death. Now, understand that the consequences of sin from the Levitical law changed with Christ. He would bring a change. And part of it would happen right here, uh, where, where we're now under grace and not under the law. So the con- earthly consequences would change. But they're throwing a text in, in Jesus' face. Let her see, notice, their target. Their target. Their text, their, or rather their trap, their text, their target. Look at verse number 6. We'll see this has nothing to do with the woman caught in adultery. This has everything to do with Jesus. Look at verse 6. This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. For sake of time, I'm not going to have you do it. But Luke 11:53 and 54, Luke 20:20 20, 20 are just two verses. There are uh, five or six others in the Gospels that show the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus so they can kill him. This was not about the woman caught in adultery. This was about trapping Jesus. They were trying to trap the Savior. You know what that? You know what that attitude was? You can write down in capital letters next to A, B, and C. You can write down capital P, capital R, capital I, capital D, capital E. Pride. By the way, what's the center letter in pride? It's I. It's I. It's all about me. It's also the center letter of sin. It's one of the center letters, or rather it's a letter in the word devil. Uh, it, it's, 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 it is the center, word, center letter in Lucifer, and it is the source of the issue. Now, you have two sins here. You have the woman who's committing adultery. Ooh, big sin. You have these Pharisees who are looking to stone this woman and get back at Jesus and get rid of Jesus because he's creating all this problem. And so which sin is greater? Which sin is Jesus going to forgive? Is he going to forgive the adultery or is he going to say oh it's okay with the pride well let's see number four notice the answers from the master the answers from the master letter a notice the standard to condemn i love how jesus handled the pharisees because they would try to entrap them and he'd always beat them at their game now i want you to visualize this okay here you have jesus and he is uh, teaching in the temple. He's got a bunch of people around him. And the Pharisees and scribes, they come in their mob mentality and they throw this woman down in front of Jesus. And she's probably weeping and crying and, and embarrasses all get out. I can't even imagine what she thought. And, and, and the, the men are pushed the other people out of the way and they're standing there with stones in their hand and they're saying, Moses in the law says that she should be stoned. What do you say? How did Jesus handle that? Well, he knelt down and ignored them. He just got down on a knee and he began to write in the sand. Many have speculated what he wrote in the sand. I heard somebody say he started to write their names and the sins, their, their, their sexual sins, one at a time. But uh, who knows what Jesus wrote? We, we weren't there, the Bible doesn't say. But he just begins to play in the dirt, like he's in a sandbox. And they're all standing there with stones in their hand. What do you say, Jesus? They're bloodthirsty. They want to kill her. Jesus, after a moment of ignoring them, stands up and says, He who is without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. Then he gets back down and he begins to write in the sand. Oh my goodness, they were not ready for that curveball. Woo! The eldest, and, and again, this is why many people speculate that he did that. From the eldest to the youngest, they began to drop their stones and they began to leave. They left. What was the standard to condemn? If you want to condemn, you must be perfect. If you want to condemn, you must first be without sin. Jesus stood up after a little bit longer riding the sand. And he looked at her and he said, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, they're gone. They're gone. The standard to condemn... Can I tell you this morning, you may have come in the church door, and listen, I've preached hard. Some of you are shell-shocked by, especially if you're new here, shell-shocked maybe a little by how hard I've preached. But let me just say, tenderly say this to you. The only person that can condemn your sin, the only person 
that can condemn your sin is God. I cannot condemn you. Condemn would mean to, to, to judge, to punish. I cannot punish you. Why is it that God, and specifically in the form of Jesus, why is it that He can condemn you? Because He was perfect. He who is without sin. Who is without sin? I'm not without sin. Boy, I have had my share of sins in my life. He's perfect. He can judge you. Now, you may not like that He judges you, but He's without sin. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to be the one that condemns you. I'm not going to be the one that casts you into eternal damnation in hell. But can I tell you who will? The one who is without sin. And you are with sin. And you may not like that, but the question is, what are you going to do with that pride that's bowing up in your heart right now? You're going to allow that to continue to bow up and say, well, my way, my way. No, trust me, he's going to win one day. The only book that can condemn you is the Bible. You know why? Because it's perfect. It's perfect. The standard to condemn is perfection. Letter B, notice. Notice the strength to commute or pardon. The strength to commute. What does the Bible say about sin? Everybody listen to me here for a minute. First of all, let me just say that I am as much guilty of sin as everybody else in this room. In one way or the other, I have violated all Ten of the, of the Old Testament laws or the spirit of the law. The Bible says if you look on a woman uh, with lust, you've committed adultery. You say, Pastor, have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Find me a man living in 2019 that hasn't. We all have. You say, well, the Bible says that if you hate your brother, you're guilty, your brother, you're guilty of the sin of murder. Have I ever hated someone? You betcha I have. You betcha I have. I can't stand up here and condemn you, but the Bible can condemn me, and the Bible can condemn you. Well, what is that condemnation? What is that punishment? Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says this, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. What is a wage? It is a payment. Um, I am gainfully employed by the good people sitting in front of me here, the, the church members of White Oak Baptist Church. Every two weeks, I have a paycheck deposited in my account. And I have to tell you, I work very, very hard for the money that I get. Those that are close to me and know me well know that I am not ripping off the church members here. I work and I work and I work and I put forth a good effort. You know what? I put out labor and I get a paycheck in return. You all have a job. Most of you here have a job. You exchange labor for wages or a paycheck. And uh, uh, you know what? One day we're going to hand over our sin to God and he's going to hand us the paycheck. You say, well, what is the wages? What are the wages or the paycheck of sin? The Bible says it's death. Or separation. Ezekiel 18, chapter, chapter 18, verse 20 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Not it might die, it shall die. Now notice there it says, The soul, the soul that liveth. We talked about that line on the back wall a few minutes ago. We talked about how that God is the entire line. He's existed from eternity past. He'll exist into eternity future. You had a starting point on that line. And can I tell you something? Your flesh is going to live for 60, 70, 80, 100 years at the most, 120 years at the most. Your soul is going to live forever. But the Bible says the soul that sinneth it shall die. When your body lays in the, the grave and they have a funeral service for you and that flesh is done and they bury it and over years and years it decays and goes away. Can I tell you something that will never decay and go away? Your soul will live forever. And it's either going to live in eternity with God in heaven or it's going to live in eternity in hell with Satan. And my friend, your pride can keep you from heaven and condemn you to hell if you do not turn from unbelief and turn to believing in Jesus as your Savior. The soul that sinneth it shall die. Now notice this woman here. She's there in front of Jesus. She's embarrassed. She's humiliated. Jesus says, he that is without sin cast the first stone. Everybody else leaves. Now it's the lady and Jesus. Can I tell you what Jesus could have done right here? Jesus could have stoned her and killed her. And would have been completely justified in doing it. Why? Because he was perfect. But he didn't do that. He looked at her, and he saw through the veneer, and he looked into her heart, and he said, 
neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You know what he saw? He saw humility. Please don't miss this. This is the sermon this morning. He saw humility. The scribes and Pharisees that had just exited stage left, they were still lifted up with pride. This woman was filled with humility. And you know what Jesus said? He said, I forgive you. I forgive you. Today, you have a choice. You can waive your phony religion, and I'm even including the Baptist church in that statement. Having your name on some Baptist church role is not going to get anybody into heaven. Nor Presbyterian or Methodist or Lutheran or Episcopal or Catholic. God doesn't care about your religious background. He cares what have you done with Jesus. You say, well, I was born, I was born an Episcopal, I'll die an Episcopal. I was born a Catholic, I'll die a Catholic. I was born a Baptist, I'll die a Baptist. When you get to heaven, God does not give two cents for what religion you grew up in. What He cares about is what did you do with Jesus? He's going to want to know. He's going to say, I sent my son to die on the cross for you. He became your sin up on that tree. He was put in the grave. He stood up three days later. He has the power to save you. He's looking for you like this woman to come with a heart of humility, with a heart of, uh, of, of, of confession of your sin and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I turn to you. And if you will turn to the Lord, he will save you. He has the power to commute your crimes. The question isn't can he or will he. The question is will you. Will you humble your heart? Let me finish letter C. Notice this is a challenge to the Christians in the room this morning. The sign of a Christian. Look at verse number 11. I'll finish with this. It says, She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Look at the rest of the verse. Go and sin no more. Verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them. This is the people that had originally gathered to hear him teach. Saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He that walketh, he that followeth me. Christian, are you following the Lord? Can I tell you this? I've been saved for 31 years. There have been times where I have had my eyes locked on Jesus. And I have followed him every step of the day. But then there have been times where I've gotten distracted. And I'm not following him. Can I tell you what the difference is between following the Lord and not following the Lord? The days that I'm following the Lord, I have a humble heart. And I'm saying, Lord, lead me, because I can't. The days that I'm not walking in the light as I'm supposed to, and I'm off doing my own thing, and I'm sinning in the shadows of my life, and I'm trying to cover up and hide and be disingenuous and a hypocrite and a Pharisee, those days that I'm doing that, I'm lifted up in pride, and I'm not following the Lord. The Bible says God resists that. Here's what Jesus says. I have forgiven you. Go and sin no more. That doesn't mean we're never going to commit a sin, but that means we should bow our head and immediately confess and get right back on track. Right back on track. Jesus said, I'm the light. You don't want to live in darkness. Walk in the light. I want you to turn to one more passage, and I'm going to show you an example of exactly what I'm talking about, and then we'll close. Luke Turn over to Luke chapter 18. Please, please, everybody turn over to Luke chapter 18. We're going to read a passage. I'm going to make a couple of comments. And then we will finish the service today. Luke chapter 18, and look at verse number 9. It says there, And he spake this parable unto certain ones which trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and despised others. Now I want to stop and ask a question. Are you trusting in yourself to get to heaven? Are you trusting in some set of religious rituals? Are you trusting in you to get you to heaven? Or are you trusting in Jesus? Look at verse 10. Jesus tells the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee. He was religious. And the other a publican. He was a tax collector that was embezzling money. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, no doubt pointing at the publican, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. 
And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, this man went, out, went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Until you get to a place, my friend, where you accept your sin, you humbly call on the name of Jesus to be your Savior, then you're living under the condemnation of God. God does not care about anything other than this. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to get you to heaven? A lot of people, a lot of people, they're trusting in Jesus, but they're also trusting in themselves. Trusting in Jesus, they're also trusting in themselves. They're trusting in Jesus, but they're also trusting in their church. They're trusting in Jesus, but they're also trusting in their good works. They're trusting in Jesus, but they're also trusting in what culture tells them or what their family tells them. And Jesus says, no, you don't get to heaven with, with, with me and you get to heaven and me alone. Jesus wants you to fall back and trust him. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus alone? As a small boy, I put, bowed my head and I said, dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I deserve to spend eternity separated from you in hell. I understand you died for me. I humbly ask you to save my soul. That day, April 8th, 1988, as a small boy, Jesus saved me. And he'll do the same for you today. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your forgiving spirit toward a woman caught in the very act of adultery. Lord, she left that day forgiven. But the Pharisees never would be forgiven. Because they refuse to humble their heart. Lord, my fear is that somebody in this room this morning is on their way to hell because of their own pride. They've heard the truth. They know the truth. But they will not humble their heart and accept the truth. And Lord, I pray that, uh, that, that those here today that are not in your family, those that have not put their faith and trust in Jesus alone, Lord, you'd help them to humble their heart and be like this publican who beat his chest and said, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, there's forgiveness at the cross. There's a home in heaven awaiting those that will humble and just trust you. I think about the man who approached Paul in the New Testament and said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's response was very simple. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The of the verse that says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. May we not delay another moment. With our heads bowed and eyes still closed, if you're here today and you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, you've not yet called on His name and asked Him to forgive you of your sins like this publican did, I would like to help you to do that right there where you are. Will you follow the lead of the publican? Will you follow the lead of the woman caught in adultery? Will you follow the lead of myself and many others here who've put their faith and trust in Jesus? If you'd like to do that, would you just repeat this prayer right where you are in your pew? There's no set of words that will save you. We don't believe that just some repeating after a preacher does anything for you. But we do believe this, that God sees the faith in your heart. And if you'll call on Him by trusting in Him, He'll save you. He'll, he'll forgive your sins. He'll rescue you from hell. He'll set your feet on a path. A guaranteed path to heaven. Just pray this prayer right where you are. If you'd like to put your faith in Jesus, just say, Dear Lord Jesus, underneath your breath, right where you are, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. And I know my sin condemns me to hell. Jesus, I know you died on the cross for me. Will you forgive my sins? Will you save my soul? Will you take me to heaven when I die? In Jesus' name.